All right, as people are coming online, we will begin. Now, let's open in a word of prayer and we will get started with our, um, or we will continue with our walk through the confession of faith. Let's pray first. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the scriptures that we have them accurately and in our own native tongue. We ask that you will help us to think carefully about some of the issues of your word being inspired in the original, in the original writings, and then being transmitted to us, and then and translated into into the common languages of people of every nation. Help us, Lord, to value your word and and be in awe of the process which you have used to give your church access to the scriptures. Help us to make proper applications in our own life and help us to, to simply uh, understand this aspect of our faith and um, not go to ex uh, extreme or radical views on it. Uh, and help us to have, have a good, solid foundation for why we believe what we believe. And I pray that this, this uh, message this afternoon will be a or this morning, rather, will be a blessing to your people, whether they watch and listen to it now or later. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Again, since we <clears throat> had some weather recently and there were concerns about being able to access our usual, usual meeting place, we are only having sermons online, we're not having in-person services today for Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Portland, but I trust these messages will nonetheless be a blessing as they go out over the internet and as people listen now or later. Again, we are walking through chapter one of our Second London or 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. Chapter one is all about the Holy Scriptures and we are ready for paragraph eight now. Inspiration, Transmission, and Translation. That's what I've titled this message. Paragraph 8 of the Confession says this, and if you, have, uh, if you happen to have a Trinity Hymnal Baptist edition at home, this would be page 671 in there, but of course you can find the Confession in many other forms online, or um, perhaps you have a hard copy at home. Paragraph 8 says this, The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God, and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic. So catch the... Uh, the grammar there, it's, it's, it's a little hard to follow, perhaps, um, with all the, the qualifications here and all the comments along the way. But basically, it's saying the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek, uh, all these other things being true of them, are therefore, because of these things that are mentioned, they are therefore authentic. The Old Testament in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek are authentic. Uh, reading on, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. 
But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, who have a right unto and interest in the Scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar, meaning common or vernacular, language. Uh, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. It footnotes various texts which we will address along the way, um, referencing that the Old Testament was in Hebrew, the native language of the people of God of old, references Romans 3, verse 2. Um, speaking of the church's final appeal to the scriptures, it references Isaiah 8, verse 20, and Acts 15, verse 15. Speaking of um, searching the scriptures, it references John 5, verse 39. Um, in reference to the vulgar language of every nation unto which the scriptures come, it references 1 Corinthians 14, verses 6, 9, 11 through 12, 24, and 28. And then um, it references when it says that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. It references Colossians 3 and verse 16. <clears throat> so I think the big idea of this paragraph in our confession is this. And I'll, I'll say this more than once both in its original wording and thus in its faithful translation, the Bible remains the reliable and final authority for the church. So again, both in its original wording and then in its faithful translation, the Bible remains the reliable and final authority for the church. So, both in its original wording, you could say primarily and immediately, and thus, by derivation, in its faithful translation, these things are true of the Bible. The Bible remains, still is, the reliable and the final authority for the church. <clears throat> Referencing these texts that the, that the Confession footnotes, Isaiah 8, verses 19 through 20 and when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching, or to the Torah, to the law, and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. The sun will never rise on them. They are in darkness. To the law and to the testimony to God's word that he has given. In this case, the Old Testament writings that were already available. If they will not speak, if people who claim to be spiritual guides will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They are in darkness and they cannot lead you to light. The scripture must remain the reliable and final authority for God's people. Likewise, Acts 15 is given by the Confession as an example of where we see James, the brother of the Lord, using the Scripture as his final appeal in a controversy of religion. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Uh, this is at the so-called Council of Jerusalem. Um, it says, after they, Paul and Barnabas, finished speaking about their mission to the Gentiles and their gospel of grace to the Gentiles, not demanding the Gentiles to be circumcised or become Jewish to truly be God's people, or to keep the law of Moses uh, as such. It says, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, meaning Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So, <clears throat> pause there. The church at Jerusalem, uh, with the elders and everyone present, um, they've heard from the Apostle Paul, who's seen the Lord Jesus and been commissioned by him personally. They've heard from Barnabas, cousin of John Mark, and, and they, they've heard Paul and Barnabas, of all people, tell them what God's been doing among the Gentiles. And, and this is not and what he's been doing without reference to the Gentiles being circumcised or keeping the Old Covenant law. And then James refers to Simon Peter, the Apostle of Christ, who's just shared his first-hand testimony of how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. But look at what James's final appeal is. After referencing Paul and Barnabas and Simon Peter, he says, verse 15 of Acts 15, And with this, the words of the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, agree. And that's the most important thing. With this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, James says, now that he has gone to the final appeal, the Scriptures, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. James rests his case once he has demonstrated it from the scriptures. Now, as we look at this paragraph in the Confession, <clears throat> in the historical situation leading up to the Westminster and the Second London Confessions, of course they're identical here, the Roman Catholic Church claimed that their Latin Vulgate, which was a good thing when it was first produced but by Jerome, and then it went through revisions after that, but the Roman Catholic Church was now claiming that their Latin Vulgate was the pure Word of God, and that where the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts did not support the Vulgate, the Hebrew and Greek had been corrupted. See, they'd already made up their minds what their doctrine was, and they had their proof texts from their Latin Vulgate, whether or not it was a legitimate use even of their Vulgate, even of their translation. But now that they'd made up their minds uh, what the pure word of God was, they, they would use their Vulgate to, in their minds, correct what might be out there in the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. So again, they claimed their Latin Vulgate was the pure word of God, and where the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts did not support the Vulgate, the Hebrew and Greek had been corrupted. Thus the scriptures in their original tongues, according to Rome, were no longer pure. So the Confessions respond 
by saying that we can indeed go to the original languages to find the pure words of God. God breathed out the very words of the Hebrew and Greek originals, and he has providentially preserved those words in the vast number of copies in, their, in those original languages. So not only, again, I'm, I'm repeating myself a lot to make sure you, you catch it all, not only did God breathe out, that's what we call inspiration, um, meaning it's God breathed, not only did God breathe out the very words of the original manuscripts of Scripture in the original languages, Hebrew and Greek, or actually some of the Old Testament is Aramaic, which is a cousin to Hebrew, you might say, but in the Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek originals, not only did God breathe them out in the originals, but he has providentially preserved those words in the vast number of copies, and it is vast, the vast number of copies that have come down to us in those original languages. We call them the extant copies, meaning not only do they exist, but we know that they exist. Um, they are available somewhere. Um, we're not, uh, extant manuscripts don't include manuscripts that might we might have yet to discover somewhere. In any case, this, this paragraph talks about inspiration, inspiration of Scripture, that it uh, refers to immediately um, and most directly to what happened when the original human authors, under the guidance of God's Holy Spirit, penned the original words in the original languages. So this paragraph deals with the inspiration of Scriptures then with, and with its transmission, that it has been preserved, and with its translation, and that translation of the scripture is proper and necessary. So first of all, <clears throat> walking rather quickly through it um, from at a basic level, first of all, the Bible's immediate inspiration in its original languages, and the technical term in scholarly studies for this is the autographa, or you could say the autographs, the original um, of what we would call the, the original writings, the autographa or autographs, the Bible's immediate inspiration in its original languages. As, as the paragraph says, the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, notice, it was a language they could understand, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations. It was, again, it was a language which the most people could understand. Uh, so it says, the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek being immediately inspired by God, immediately, without any mediation, um, directly, not just in a derived sense, but these very words were immediately breathed out, inspired by God. And of course it references for the Old Testament in Hebrew, Romans 3, verses 1 through 2, um, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, Paul writes. It was to the Jews that the uh, Old Testament scriptures were entrusted. This is also sort of a, uh, <laughs> a swipe at what Protestants call the Apocrypha. Uh, Rome, Rome would call the Deuterocanonical books. Um, Rome wanted to 
especially at the time of the Reformation, to add in apocryphal books. We've talked about this earlier in the series when we talked about the canon. Uh, and there's a paragraph about the Apocrypha in this confession, in this chapter. Rome wanted to add in the Apocrypha. Well, the Apocrypha, uh, at least uh, much of the Apocrypha, uh, to say the least, was not originally written in Hebrew. It was in Greek. And it was not received as scripture by Old Covenant Israel. So, um, it's referencing here the fact that the Old Testament, the real Old Testament, is just the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the canon for the Old for Old Covenant Israel. So we're not including the Apocrypha that was that Rome wanted to to allow us to add in later to the canon. <clears throat> All right, that was a rabbit trail. But you get the point. When we talk about inspiration, we are talking most directly and immediately about the very words God breathed out in the original languages. Okay. So num that's number one. The Bible's immediate inspiration in its original languages. Number two, the Bible's preserved inspiration in its providential transmission. So here we're talking about uh, not the autographa, but what's called by scholars the apographa. A-P-O-G-R-A-P-H-A. Apographa. Um, you don't have to remember that. We're talking about the copies made, still in the original languages, from, from the original writings that were penned by, say, Paul or Luke or whoever. The Bible's preserved inspiration in its providential transmission. God in his providence, not miraculously, but through his work in history, God providentially made sure the scriptures were transmitted to us. Um, that they were transferred, brought down to us in history, providentially. And so his inspired words were preserved, as I said before, in the vast number of copies in those original languages. And we can also uh, have great benefit uh, and help and even by comparing ancient manuscripts of, of ancient versions, ancient translations, translations that were done very early, sometimes that can help us also understand uh, the original wording um, in a secondary fashion. But primarily, this is still talking about in the original languages, <coughs> excuse me, ancient manuscripts, copies made in the original tongue. Again, the, the, the way the paragraph talks about this is by... God's singular care and providence, this Old Testament and Hebrew and New Testament and Greek, were kept pure in all ages, and they are therefore authentic. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. <clears throat> so no, contrary to what you might um, hear, directly or, or implied, perhaps, out in popular literature or movies or whatever. No, no emperor or church authority carried out a program of radically altering the scriptures so that the original scriptures are hopelessly lost, as if that were even possible, given the distribution of the manuscripts all over the ancient world. No one, it was impossible for anyone to gather them all up and destroy them all. Though it was attempted to a degree at certain times, like in Diocletian's persecution, uh, the worst Roman persecution. 
But you know, many false religious systems, <clears throat> like Islam, like Mormonism, the LDS Church, um, many systems like that wish to believe that the scriptures were successfully tampered with and altered from their original pure wording and doctrine. But the church has not lost her foundation. We, the church has not lost her foundation in the writings of the apostles and prophets. That's not lost to us. We do not appeal to a church tradition or a patriarch or pope or a priestly magisterium, or even to a venerated translation like the Greek Septuagint or the Latin Vulgate or the authorized version of 1611 in English, no. Our reliable and final appeal in doctrinal controversy is to the Word of God breathed out into the original languages. Number three. We see here in this paragraph the Bible's derived inspiration then the Bible's derived inspiration in its vernacular translations. Vernacular, the common tongue. <clears throat> the Bible's derived inspiration in its vernacular translations. Again, reading on in the paragraph, but because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, who have a right unto and interest in the scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation into which they come. That the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. The confession here footnotes John 5, <clears throat> verse 39. So I'll read verses 37 through 40 to get the context. Jesus says to the Jewish religious leaders who are not believing in him, who are opposing him. Jesus says, John 5, 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And here the, the older versions like the King James read as a command, search the scriptures, but... Probably better as the ESV has it here, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. How are we to search the scriptures and find Jesus Christ there if we do not understand the language? Well, Men of God should be zealous to become familiar with the original languages if they have opportunity. But the scriptures must also be translated into the common tongue. We often use Paul's instructions about tongue speaking and interpreting to critique charismatic practices, but his instructions can be used with equal force against such things as, say, the uninterpreted Latin Mass or an untranslated Bible. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 14, which the confession references. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 6, first of all. <clears throat> and here Paul, the Apostle Paul, is speaking of the corporate worship assembly as he's writing to the church at Corinth about how they're not doing this well. <laughs> what should be happening in the corporate worship assembly in this day when there were still miraculous um, sign gifts from the Holy Spirit such as speaking in other tongues that 
had not been previously learned, uh, such as prophecy, direct word from, from God, etc. So speaking of the corporate worship assembly, Paul writes, Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? <clears throat> how will I benefit you unless there's some propositional truth there that you can understand? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle does, gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, strive to excel in building up edification of the church. Strive to excel in building up the church. Jump down to verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together, and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. All be, let all things be done, that is, in some way that is actually constructive and helpful, edifying. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. One. <clears throat> we'll end the reading of that text there. This is just one big example, but of course it's not the only place we could go, to see the importance of the knowledge of God and the worship of God and, and the church of God being intelligible, understood in our language. Since God's people have a great responsibility to worship God as he commands, and to put their trust and hope in him according to his self-revelation in Scripture, they must be enabled to understand the words of Scripture in their own vulgar or common language. That word vulgar in the confession, of course, is not being used of something that's, that's uh, crass or, or vile in some way. It's just the word for the common tongue. Like well, the same reason the Latin is called the Latin Vulgate. It was the vulgar, the common Latin when it was first translated. Jerome translated, <clears throat> by the way, the Latin Vulgate, um, at a time when people in the West, what had become the, the West of the Roman Empire, and eventually became a, a se separate from the Eastern Empire, people in the West didn't really speak Greek anymore. They spoke Latin. And so Jerome went back, though, to the original languages, Hebrew for the Old Testament and the Greek for the New Testament, and translated directly from the original languages into the vulgar common Latin. Ironic, given what 
the Roman Church did with Latin Vulgate in the era of the Reformation and uh, used it as a way to keep Scripture out of the common tongue. <laughs> Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Well, how in the world can we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly if we don't hear it in intelligible words? Obviously, it is not unspiritual. It is not profane to translate the scriptures into the common tongue. For that matter, I'll just mention, often, if you know the original languages, if you're comparing things, um, often in the New Testament, you will see Christ or the apostles or someone in the early church quoting the word of God with all the authority of the pure word of God, but they're not quoting from the original Hebrew. Often they're not. Often they're quoting the Greek Septuagint, which was the the Old Testament most people could understand at that time, and yet they still treated it as every bit the Word of God. Even when there were minor differences <clears throat> in how the the, the uh, idea or the wording came out um, in the Greek from, from the original Hebrew. Or, we could say sometimes the difference wasn't between the original Hebrew and the Greek, but sometimes the difference may have been between the Greek, as we look at, between the Greek Septuagint and maybe a later version of the Hebrew that, that we have. There might be a minor difference. In any case, there is ample reason for the people of God, every reason for the people of God, to insist that the scriptures be translated into the common tongue. Now, some further notes of application before we end here. Um, the first thing I needed to say, I wish I didn't even have to say it, um, but I think I do. Uh, I know um, some people I mentioned, um, some folks in our church probably have had some dealings with in the past. Um, but I need to first warn against misusing or abusing the doctrine of preservation. A warning against abusing the doctrine of preservation. You see, even Reformed Baptist churches get lured into such misuse or abuse of this doctrine. Now, I confess that God has preserved his word in the multitude of ancient manuscripts which contain scripture in its original languages. But that's not enough for some folks. Perhaps they want an uninterrupted line of perfect manuscripts free from all scribal errors. That's what some people insist on. Or perhaps they want a translation that never needs correction from the original languages. Or some are a bit more sophisticated, and that yet they still seek to avoid any ongoing comparison of ancient manuscripts. They don't want to hear about, <clears throat> say, the Dead Sea Scrolls or earlier manuscripts that were um, perhaps not readily available to compare when Erasmus was putting together his Greek New Testament in the 1500s. No, they 
They want to avoid any ongoing comparison of ancient manuscripts. They, they, some of them really just sneer at, at what they would call modern textual criticism, claiming that you can't separate that from unbelieving rationalism. I'm just saying right now that's not true, but that's the claim. Modern textual criticism is hopelessly flawed because it's based on unbelieving rationalism. Certainly, um, plenty of unbelieving rationalists have contributed in some scholarly way to the discovery of manuscripts, things of that nature. Um, but that doesn't prove their point. They would say, um, some of these folks would say that the English Standard Version, which we use at our church, is fatally compromised since it does not always follow their approved Greek and Hebrew texts. Such divisive schismatic teachings have recently made a comeback in our circles under the name of confessional bibliology. I'll say that's a poorly named movement, because of course it's, it's claiming for itself the only truly confessional position on this matter. Um, this movement is not all that large in the grand scheme of things, but it has gained a foothold in some Reformed circles, especially among certain Reformed Baptists. <clears throat> um, and some men who are otherwise good preachers have fallen into this. The, the late Garnett Milne was a leading voice, and so is Dr. Jeff Riddle, who is very influential, for instance, in Reformed Baptist circles in Virginia. Um, he also now is, uh, has been functioned as adjunct faculty at IRBS, International Reform Baptist Seminary, down in the Fort Worth area, and they've had him talk about textual criticism. I was very disheartened to see both men that I just mentioned appear in the footnotes in Dr. Jim Renahan's new book on our confession. <clears throat> um, and when Dr. Renahan refers to the immediate inspiration of the autographs and their preservation through the centuries, he says, for a detailed examination of the matter, see Garnet H. Milne, has the Bible been kept pure, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Providential Preservation of Scripture. Again, this man, Garnet Milne, is part of this, at least has contributed and been used by this movement, Confessional Bibliology. And... Clearly, as he describes his own book, you can read it online, on Amazon, whatever, from the back of the book, um, <clears throat> it's an attack on textual criticism, modern textual criticism, and on evangelicals who would um, countenance that. Um, Dr. Renahan also expresses gratitude to Dr. Jeff Riddle for his helpful input regarding this paragraph of our confession. I won't, well, I, I will. Um, I'll read you part of what this man Garnett Milne said in his description of his book from its back cover. Um, he's objecting to what he calls the new textual critical paradigm of the modern textual critics, that the recovery of the autographic text is at least an ongoing project, and some would say an impossible project. Next he says, such a stance removes epistemological certainty for many, and is a radically different position than that of the Reformed Orthodox in the 16th and 17th centuries. It is a view which must be recovered by the Church, because, as the Puritans realized, 
It is required to provide certainty in the authority of the Holy Scriptures, which is a precondition of a subjective assurance of faith. Now, I hope uh, I may have lost you there, but did you catch what Garnett Milton is saying? I'll reword it here. Mr. Milne is objecting to modern textual criticism for its ongoing comparison of ancient manuscripts. A comparison for the purpose of getting as close as possible to the original words penned by the human authors of Scripture. He doesn't like that. The reason is that men in the confessional bibliology movement contend that we need no such comparison now. They look at what manuscript evidence was readily available to translators in the 1600s, the era of the Westminster and Second London Confessions, and they conclude that that should essentially be the final word on any textual variance, on any study of, especially the New Testament text, but Old Testament too. <clears throat> they would say they hold to the Masoretic Hebrew text for the Old Testament, and to a line of Greek New Testament texts, uh, which started with the Desiderius Erasmus, now known as the Textus Receptus, or the TR. Why these texts? Why are these the ultimate standard? Well, and, and these texts, I might add, were the result of intensive textual criticism in that day. Well, they see these as the basis for the Bible translations coming out of the Reformation, particularly the King James Version in English. And for them, here's really where they say this is a confessional position. For them, we cannot say that Scripture has been, quote, kept pure in all ages if we concede that, if we admit that the text behind the King James Version can be substantially improved in any big way. Now, the number of issues this raises, the number of inconsistencies in such a position are enormous. But I will simply say for now that it's unacceptable to reason backwards from an arbitrary point in church history to determine the exact text of Scripture. We cannot say that because God providentially allowed certain Greek and Hebrew texts to be the foundation for certain translations, that therefore those texts cannot possibly need any correction. That's just invalid. And I must also say, as a shepherd of God's sheep, that though otherwise good brothers get sucked into them, such movements as confessional bibliology and TR-onlyism and outright KJV-onlyism, they're slightly different things, but movements like that are a schism, an unnecessary schism in the church. They handle church history and manuscript evidence often unjustly. They refuse to recognize the scripture as valid unless it comes in the form of their chosen text or translation. And though they may deny it, this necessarily implies that the church was without the pure and perfect word of God for many hundreds of years. There was no such thing as the Textus Receptus until Erasmus published his Greek New Testament in the 1500s. A Greek New Testament that again was the result of comparing various Greek manuscripts. Now, of course, I can't even begin an actual refutation of this complicated position here. If you want to look into it further, I'll be providing some resources to those on the church email list. Um, many of you already know, <clears throat> many of you have already heard of Dr. James White, and perhaps a slander by his opponents. There are a few serious issues on which I disagree with Dr. White, but I heartily commend him on this topic. His book, The King James Only Controversy, 
dealt with some of the same foundational arguments being used by confessional bibliology people. But you're probably not as familiar with Dr. Mark Ward. Dr. Ward has done a good job, as good a job as any, trying to fairly engage and refute the confessional bibliology movement. And so I'll be sending out some links. Um, one's a pretty scholarly, deep um, journal article called Which Textus Receptus? A Critique of Confessional Bibliology from the Detroit Baptist Seminary Journal. And um, another would be a YouTube link where he gave a, a, a lecture, Which TR and Why? Confessional Bibliology's Conflicting Answers to Key Questions. So if you're on the church email list, you'll get that. And if you're not on the list, but you would like the links, contact me at the church and I'll send them to you. All right, that's, I didn't even really like to get that deep into that issue, but I think it needs to be mentioned along the way in this context. But I have two more applications that are um, less technical. So, um, a second applicable thought here, second note of application. I would just give you an exhortation to respect for the original languages of Scripture. An exhortation to respect for the original languages. You'd better hope that your pastor handles the Bible with respect for its original languages. Are you aware that the Reformation was initially fueled in many cases by a preacher studying the original languages and even preaching directly from them? God's Spirit may be pleased to do outstanding things when his people go back to his breathed out words. When I was a very young preacher, I was confronted after a sermon by an indignant man from the congregation. Now, I made a lot of mistakes as a young preacher, but this wasn't one of them. Uh, he was furious that I had explained the meaning of a word using the New Testament Greek, explaining um, some shades of meaning in the Greek. I won't repeat here what he told me to do with the Greek. <laughs> he then proceeded to exalt his English translation as superior to the Greek. Since he spoke English, he stood upon the King James Version of the Bible, and he would not stand for anyone implying that his translation might be less than absolutely perfect. I'm quite certain that's not the position of anyone in our church. Nevertheless, people can sometimes be irritable when a preacher or teacher tries to explain something about the original language or wording of a Bible text. Now, certainly, preachers can sometimes drag the congregation into unnecessary details. Maybe some of you feel like I'm doing that this afternoon. I disagree. Um, but have respect for the fact that the Bible was breathed out in a language which is not your mother tongue, and that things can easily get obscured in translation. So have a respect for the original languages God chose um, in which to inspire the scriptures. And speaking of translation, third and last uh, relevant thought of application. I would exhort you to zeal for Bible translation. Zeal for Bible translation. This should be a major focus of missionary efforts, as it has been ever since William Carey, the, the British particular Baptist that we call the father of modern missions, ever since Carey went to India. He engaged in intensive Bible translation into several languages there. There are still people groups without the scriptures in their mother tongue. 
We must change that. We must work to change that. I don't think we have any experiential understanding, in, uh, we English speakers, of what it is to not have the Bible in our native language. John Fox, in his, what's popularly called his Book of Martyrs, he tells us of seven godly martyrs who were burned at the stake in Coventry, England. This was in 1519, when the Reformation was just getting started. These were common people. One was a widow, one was a shoemaker, one, uh, actually, um, several were shoemakers. One was a glover, one was a hoser, uh, hosier. Um, but the bishop in that area um, sent them to their death at the stake. Why? The principal cause, John Fox says, of the apprehension of these persons was for teaching their children and family the Lord's Prayer and Ten Commandments in English. And so on Ash Wednesday, they were taken, put in prison, some in places underground, some in chambers and other places about, until the Friday following. Then they were sent to a monastery called Maxdock Abbey, six miles from Coventry, during which time their children were sent for to the Great Friars in Coventry. And then basically what, what happened was the children were threatened that they would die the horrible death that, that these their parents were already going to die. The children would die the same death if they ever again um, had dealings with the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, or the Commandments in English. In fact, the widow involved in this situation was going to be let go, but then they, they found a rolled up piece of parchment in her sleeve. They heard it rattling around in there. And again, it was the Lord's Prayer, the Articles of Faith, and the Ten Commandments in English. And so she was sent off to her death with the men. Imagine not having even that much scripture, the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments in English. Much blood has been spilled by God's people over this issue. Let's not despise the wealth we have of English translations, faithful translations. Let's not say that, that some of the conservative translations are not the pure word of God, by the way. But let's thank God for the translations we have, the faithful ones, and, and let's work. And as a church, let's see how we can include Bible translation over time more and more in our mission's emphasis and in what we support as a church and perhaps as individuals. Don't let people starve without the Word of God in their language. They need God's words in their tongue. And we need to pay attention to God's words in our tongue and not neglect them now that we have them. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for the kind attention of those watching or listening. Uh, we ask that you would strengthen your church, free it from unhelpful errors, and uh, help us to value the scriptures, have respect for them in the original languages, but also be zealous for faithful translation into the language of every nation to which the scriptures come, to, to which the gospel comes. Lord, thank you for this Lord's Day. Help us to sanctify it as unto you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.